everyone, and welcome back to the Metazoa Podcast, a show about nature by those who love nature. I'm your host, Phoebe Carnes, a passionate biology student and your resident alcoholic. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Dunford, a biology flavor comp sci major. I love the way you worded that. That's that's so much fun. <laughs> and it really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It really does, yes. Um, and I want to say, just before we get into this episode, which I'm so excited to get into the bread and butter of this episode, um, is that we want to thank everyone for the support that we received on episode one. We have no idea what we're doing. Um, and so seeing everyone's feedback and just the support that we've gotten has been really amazing to see. So thank you, everyone, for supporting us here at the Metazoa Podcast. But we're very, very excited for this episode. At least I am. Jacob, I'm pretty excited. Jacob doesn't know a whole lot about this episode, <laughs> but I have worked on it for the entire like two weeks. I think it is now. Um, so this is going to be a great episode. I, I can just already tell. So let's just get right into it. Let's not waste any more time. Jacob, we have a very important, very special birthday to celebrate today. Oh, yeah. Very, what's, what's that? Very special birthday. Are you familiar with Jonathan the tortoise? I am. He's the oldest uh, tortoise around, isn't he? Not only the oldest tortoise, he's the oldest land animal that we know of. Oh, I didn't know period. that. Period. So, Jonathan, just a couple weeks ago, turned 191 years old. <laughs> yes. Happy birthday, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Jonathan, he's a Seychelles giant tortoise. So these are native to the Seychelles archipelago, uh, which is in the Indian Ocean off the coast of Africa. Um, and he's estimated to have been born in 1832. 1832. Yeah, that's when he had estimated. Yeah, estimated. We don't know. So to give people a perspective, this was before the invention of the light bulb, the telephone, even the postage stamp. We didn't have any of that when Jonathan first hatched into the world. Um, he's lived through 40 U.S. presidents. <laughs> um, and currently he lives on St. Helena, which is a British overseas territory um, in the South Atlantic Ocean, like 1,200 miles off the coast of Africa, right? And now any history nerds out there might recognize that name because this was the island that Napoleon Bonaparte was exiled to. Okay. And in 1840, his remains were transferred from that island to Paris. This was 42 years before Jonathan would arrive on the island, but this was after he was born. Just let that sink in for a moment. So he was brought to the island in 1882. And the reason we estimate that his birth year is 1832 is because when he got to the island, he was described as a fully grown tortoise. So we, that would mean he's at least 50 years old. Um. But there are some people that think he could be well over 200 at this point because he could have been 50. He could have been 100. Who knows? We have no idea um, his original birth date. Um, but in 2022, he was granted his official birthday of December 4th, 1832. Aww, um, he's a Christmas baby. I know. Baby. He's a little Christmas baby. But his caregivers, the veterinarians and the people that actually care for Jonathan, celebrate every New Year's Day. They start off the new year celebrating Jonathan the tortoise. 
<laughs> um, Start your near you off, right? I know. Um, and so he gets, you know, some special vegetables and fruits and stuff on his birthday. And he's actually out. Do you think he knows? That is his birthday. Do you think he knows that it's his birthday or is he just like, oh, I, it's special, special treat time? I don't know. I mean, it must have been really good. He probably. I don't know if he if he knows it's his birthday, but he he probably just enjoys that day very much. Just he he does a lot of sunbathing. He's made the, made the connection. <laughs> well, the only one who knows his actual birthday is Jonathan, and he's not he's not talking. So, um, but but here's, here's kind of the funny thing about this whole story is that he's outlived his species life expectancy by um, quite a few decades. Actually, do you want to guess what the life expectancy? For this giant tortoise is. Let's see here. He's 191. Yep. And you said he outlived it by several decades. Yep. I'm going to say 150. That is exactly right, actually. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, the, the average life expectancy is 150 years old. That's also insane. Um, That's, yeah. But, you know, here's, even though he's blind now, he has cataracts in his eyes, he can't hear a lick. His caregivers say that he's still healthy and has many years left of his already incredibly long life. The reign, the reign of Jonathan is not <laughs> the yet The reign over. of Jonathan the tortoise is not yet over. And I hope it never ends because I I love this tortoise so very, very much. Why why do tortoi, tortoises, why do they why do they live so long? Do they, do they just have a really slow metabolism? That's part of it, or? yeah. So they're not really using a lot of energy, um, and so that's going to help them live a very long time. They just take life slow. I think that's all of our lesson that we should take away from this, is, is be like Jonathan. Just take your life slowly one day at a time. Um, so happy birthday, Jonathan. We... Happy birthday, Jonathan. We love and appreciate you. <laughs> um, another really fun story that actually a lot of people were sending me is there was a rare piebald moose spotted in Norway. Um, this is actually the first time that I've ever heard of there being a piebald moose. Um, and so if you are looking on the show doc like I am, I actually put a picture of this moose on there for you to look at jacob mm. um we'll also be posting this on our social media who like <laughs> really does look like a cow um so this was seen by photographer thomas morch um in norway once again in eastern norway to be more specific and he got a tip from his friend who um herds horses through this valley in eastern norway um, and so he went out there on the chance that maybe this animal was still around and lo and behold, he found it and got some really wonderful images. Um, everyone should go give him a follow on social media. He's a wonderful photographer. And, you know, piebaldism is one of those things in deer that's not, not uncommon. Um, but it's, it's in larger deer, it's, it's pretty rare. So in moose. Explain to us what piebaldism is. Yeah, is yeah absolutely. So piebaldism occurs when the cells that form your melanin, we call these uh, melanocytes, that makes sense. Um, they do not form properly for whatever reason in like skin and hair um, on the body. And so this is going to give it that piebald appearance where you're going to have some splotches that are the normal kind of brown, gray color, and then others are going to be lacking color, so they're going to be white. Um and this is quite common in domesticated animals. Um, there's even some populations of like white-tailed deer here in North Carolina that have a lot of piebaldism in their populations, but it's not very often seen in like elk and moose and those sorts of individuals. Um, 
and Morch and some of the other residents in this area say they've seen this moose a couple of times, but he's vanished now, probably because it's winter and he's trying to go hide away and survive the harsh conditions of, of winter in Norway, the sub-zero temperatures. Um, but in case any of you guys are worried about this moose, here is a quote from one of the residents who lives here, quote, it doesn't look like a moose. He is almost as fat as a pig with the belly like a cow. So I think this moose, yeah, he's going to be okay. He's right. going to be fine. Um, so do not worry. But that's super cool to see a piebald moose. I've, I've never seen it in person, but I've certainly never seen images of it either. I'd be very impressed if you'd seen it in person. I, I know. I mean, you know, one day is, is hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll be able to see one, but uh, alas. Um, so Jacob, I have a question for you. Okay. Vampire bats. What's, what's your mm-hmm. opinion on vampire bats? Do you have an opinion? I think they get a, I get the bats in general get a bad rap. And I think they're, well, not the prettiest of the bats. Mm-hmm. I still think they're rather cute. And the way yeah. they do things is very interesting. It's very intriguing. Yeah, it is. It is quite interesting. Um, but how, how would you feel if vampire bats were just flying around your backyard, for example? I don't think I would notice. Not, not going to lie. You know, that's a fair answer. Yeah. I don't know if I would even notice. <laughs> I, mean, I think I think it would be I think it would be cool. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I would I would notice. I don't have cattle, which is what if I, unless I'm wrong, they normally feed on. Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't notice them feeding on cattle, and I don't think that if the bats if a vampire bat was flying around, I would don't think I'd be able to pick it out from the bats we have flying around normally. I, I probably so I wouldn't either. To be honest with notice. you, if I'm just seeing it flying above my head or something, I'm going to be like, oh, there's a there's a little brown bat. It's a bat. It's a bat. Um, well, Jacob, the reality of us having vampire bats in our backyard might soon come to fruition because scientists oh, and researchers are correlating rising temperatures in the southern United States with a spread of vampire bats northward. So vampire mm. bats ordinarily are found in places like Mexico and Central and South America, um, some islands in the Caribbean. Colombia is a place where they have been historically in large numbers. And Colombia, by the way, has the highest bat biodiversity. I mean, there are just so many bats in Colombia. It's actually really cool. But they're moving up here to the southern United States slowly. But they're, they're mm. making their way up. And I want to make it very clear that vampire bats probably don't have any sort of um, harm that they could ever do to people. Um, even though their name is quite terrifying, um, they mostly, as Jacob did mention earlier, they mostly target like cattle and goats and those sorts of things um, and don't usually harm those animals much either. But there is some evidence to suggest that they might be able to carry rabies. So that is possibly Mm -hmm. a concern. Um, Again, these have been reported in cattle and livestock, not humans. Um, So so people should not be that worried. Um, But these bats might indirectly kill some cattle every single year in, in these countries in Central and South America. So that is, you know, a concern to have with their spread up here. But overall, I think it'd be pretty cool to have vampire bats in my backyard. I think that'd be fun. I think it would be cool, yeah. I, the implications of it are not that cool. No, no, climate change. <laughs> as, as for why they're there. Climate but. change is not cool. 
Um, but <laughs> put that on a t-shirt. Put that, yeah, put that on a mug. We'll have it in our merchandise store. Um, but you know, we we we've kind of seen a spread of of other organisms here in the mountains too, also due to warming climates. Um, have you have you seen an armadillo yet, Jacob? I have actually. Yeah. I have. Seen where did an where was the one that you saw? If you remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. It's been it's been a it's gonna been a good bit. I think it was uh in between Bryson City and Cherokee. Yeah, that's I saw one um also along that main road. And my my dad, who is able to go to many places due to his job, has seen them like in cashiers, which is kind of crazy because it's cold up there. Um in cashiers? Yeah, that's where he's seen a majority of the armadillos. That's wild. I, I know. I yeah I know that was my reaction also and even in the in the national park we've had to my knowledge and understanding three confirmed armadillo sightings and things like that and one of them was at Newfound Gap which is one of That's, the tallest okay. points in the park other than like the dome I mean it's it's right below the dome about a thousand foot yeah. under the dome yeah. yeah so that's easily what like five thousand plus feet above sea level it's cold up there uh five thousand forty three maybe I don't remember it's, it's something it's over yeah. five thousand I know that for certain um so this is something that we're probably going to see a lot more as the climate continues to warm um is we're going to see the spread of these new species and one of the issues that the park service has had is should we manage them the way that we would like, you know, wild hogs or some other invasive species, because they're not technically invasive if they're moving due to natural climate changes is caused by humans. And that's unnatural, but climate shifts have been natural for many, you know, since the earth began. Right. Um, so do mm-hmm. we manage species that are moving for those reasons or do we just let it happen? Because that's how species have moved across the world is through these climate shifts. That's been a thing that has happened. So that's kind of been a topic of discussion. That's that's an interesting discussion. Yeah, it's like they're not supposed to be here, but they came here of their own accord. Right, yeah. So do we do anything? That's interesting. Yeah. I've never thought about that before. And I don't think we have an answer. They're invasive, but they're also like... I don't know because most invasive species are because of us. I guess you could you could still definitely argue that they are there because of us, but like we didn't we didn't bring them there. It wasn't like the case of they wild just kinda hogs wandered on. Yeah, up. exactly. Or most of the um, uh, parasitic insects for the trees yeah. and mm-hmm. such that we have in the park. And that's the other thing too is like are armadillos going to do the the sort of damage that other invasive species True. do? Like. The, the biggest concern would be with the salamander population because they would probably mm-hmm. prey on salamanders. Um, but the Smokies is not really starved of salamanders. Um, <laughs> salamander capital of the world. Right. But this, it's just there's a lot of questions about it that I think are very interesting and no like conclusion or plan has been made yet. Um, but it, it's something very interesting to think about. So, it is. So, yeah. Um, here's some exciting news. Two new species of squid have been discovered off the coast of Japan. Two. Two. Not just one. Two. And these are very tiny squids. They are the sizes of paper clips. Itty bitty. 
I know, itty bitty little squids. And they've been discovered um, off of Okinawa, Japan. Um, And yeah, so the scientists who discovered these, they say they live in seagrass fields and coral beds, which sounds so lovely. If I was a little squid, that's where I would want to be. And their maximum length is half an inch. That is as big as they can get. I know. They're itty bitty. Um, So the first of these two species is the Ryukayan pygmy squid. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, But they're actually named after the Kijimuna, which is a mythical creature in Okinawan folklore. So their scientific name is Ariosepius Kijimuna. That's their Latin name. I know. That's cool. Um, And so for those who are not familiar, the Kijamuna are said to be red-haired, childlike creatures that live in banyan trees. And everyone should look up what a banyan tree is right now. They are crazy-looking trees. Um, They have aerial roots. So kind of like um, if you go to a cypress swamp and you see all of the roots sticking up, that's kind of what these trees have. And they they, they really do look like something right out of Oh, but on steroids. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, like the forest that they're in, is they're all misty and covered in moss and lichen, and it's just the coolest thing ever. That's so cool. Yeah. And so just like the Kijamuna out of the Japanese folklore, these squidge are kind of a red color, and they live in forests, in this case, seagrass forests, which is, I think, really awesome. Um, and also a little interesting note is it's said that these squids only seem to appear in winter and then wherever they go in the summer, in yeah, and then wherever they go in the summer, we have no idea. So further research needs to be done. Um, and then the second species is actually a predatory species. And this is um, Hanyan's pygmy squid. The scientific name for that one is Kodama jujutsu. And it takes its name after a very famous underwater photographer. But the jujitsu part of its name comes from the impressive quote, underwater acrobatics that it uses to hunt prey, which, according to these researchers, resembles the martial art it is named after. Huh. Um, so Jeffrey Jolly, who is a co-author of the study and the discovery, said, quote, jujitsu revolves around grappling and using your opponent's strength. And the Kodama jujitsu, which is the name of the shrimp again, preys on shrimp larger than itself by grappling with its small arms, <laughs> which is an image that I think is amazing. Um, and not only is it a new species, it's also representative of a whole new ju- genus of squids. Um, dub Kodama. So that's really as well, awesome as well. And Kodama are ghostly tree spirits in Japanese legend um, believed to dwell in these very ancient forests. Um, and their presence in these forests is seen as a positive thing. Um, and it's a sign of a healthy forest as well, um, which makes a lot of sense because these squids being present in this area is also a sign of a very healthy ocean. So I think that is probably one of the coolest little bits of news that has crossed my so desk cool. in the past couple of weeks um i love when scientists have fun when they name things and they don't go with something boring like yellow spotted squid or something you know i love i love when they have some some fun with it another news story that is also super super fun 
Along the California coast, um, are you aware that there's been an El Nino this year along the California coast, Jacob? Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, it's affected weather all across the United States, even here in the Smokies. But the El Nino has brought a group of orcas out to play along the California coast for the past two or so weeks. It's a group of 10 orcas, which includes a few-month-old calf, and they have repeatedly been spotted just off the coast of San Diego. And when I say mm -hmm. spotted, I don't just mean like people have seen, you know, a dorsal fin here and there or something. I mean, they have been leaping out of the water in pursuit of dolphins. They have been coming up to whale watching boats and, and breaching right in front of, I'm sure, these awestruck whale watchers and, and everyone else involved. <laughs> I mean, I can't even imagine what my reaction would be if an orca leapt out of the water right in front of me. Right Probably I would cry, to be honest with you. Like Off the coast of San Diego at that. Yeah, off the coast of San Diego, um, which there are some orcas that stay along the California coast, but they tend to be a little bit further out and, and not really San mm. Diego is not their preferred habitat. Um, but this group of orcas is part of a much larger population in the eastern tropical Pacific. Um, they hang around Mexico and Central America, sometimes Hawaii for the most part. But sometimes they come up to California, mostly in search of prey, um, and they are marine mammal experts. So Jacob, I'm sure, is already very aware of this because I talk about orcas all the time. But for those who are not aware, orcas are separated into different ecotypes. So these are different populations of orcas, and each population is going to have its own culture, its own language, and its own preferred food. So for these orcas, they eat mainly whales and dolphins. That is their thing. So, you know, you put them in a place where they don't have whales and dolphins, they're probably not going to be able to find food because they don't know how to hunt fish. That's how crazy this sort of cultural um, adaptation is. And hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know about that, about how they, uh, I mean, I guess they never needed to hunt fish, so they never yeah. figured it out. It's yeah. interesting. And I mean, you also have the thing too, that the strategies that they're using to hunt these marine mammals, not only is it going to be different than trying to hunt fish, but it's passed down from the matriarch of the group, like the, el the elderly grandmother. Um, and so if she doesn't know how to do it, chances are no one else is going to know. know exactly um and so these orcas do occasionally come up but they've never stayed for this long they just sort of pass through and then move on their way but researchers believe that the el nino which makes the waters much warmer is keeping the orcas there in california because it's also keeping their prey the whales and dolphins there a lot longer too um, and what's really great about this group for whale watchers is that unlike many other um, groups of killer whales, they're very calm around people. You know, I mentioned earlier, they're coming up to boats, they're jumping in front of boats, mm. which you don't see from orcas very often. Um, and they've even started using some of these boats as hunting tools. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Started using the boats as hunting tools? Yeah. So... What these orcas have been doing is they position themselves at one end of the boat, right? And because they're hunting dolphins and whales, these dolphins are not able to echolocate past that boat, right? Because when they echolocate, that boat that boat is just like a wall. They can't see what's past the boat through their echolocation. So they're not able to sense the orcas are there. 
And that allows the orcas to do sort of this ambush attack where they're still able to kind of echolocate and listen for the dolphins. And then the dolphins can't do the same. And so they just attack them that way. Super cool. Use the boats as cover. Literally. And actually, I've been not with orcas, obviously, but with dolphins um, off the coast of of Tybee Island in Georgia. Um, There's been times where my dad and I have been kayaking and we've had dolphins use our boat as well. Um, But but this was because the fish will hide under the kayaks um, and the dolphins know Mm -hmm. that. And so they just easy pickings basically for them. And this was when I was, I don't know, like eight or nine, maybe I was really young. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world that a dolphin was, was using my kayak <laughs> as like their method of hunting. I was like, this is the highlight of my life. Um, so I, it's all downhill from here. And then it all went downhill from there, but I, I can't imagine if an orca did that. I mean, like I would probably just pass away on the spot. It would just be the best thing. That's incredible. The best thing ever. So I guess I'm going to have to book a ticket to California really soon is what that sounds like. (laughs) Um, So that's some of the news stories that I thought were very interesting to highlight this week. But Jacob, it's time for for the big the big one. The reason that I was so excited to do the podcast this week is because we have some huge news in the wildlife conservation community. much have you heard or been exposed to the wolves being reintroduced into Colorado? I've I've heard about it. I've heard about it. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a, little, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it has been all over the news. People have been going insane over, over this reintroduction, and rightfully so. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Um, I mean, wolves have been missing from Colorado since the 1940s. So that's, what, 80 years of them being gone, roughly. Um, And so bringing them back after so much time is huge. And as we're going to get into a little bit later in the podcast, just reintroducing wolves in general is such a a political, like... Yeah, I was getting ready to say, reintroduction at all is always a mess. It's always a huge deal. Yeah. But a lot of places have tried reintroducing wolves, and it did not work. Like we tried that um, around here at one point, and it did not work. And it did not work very well for a multitude of reasons. Mm -hmm. But well, I I would say this with one hundred percent confidence that you cannot find another animal in the United States whose reintroductions have been so politically charged. Like, I would agree. When we brought the elk back to the Smokies, everyone was on board with it. You know, you had a couple people who were worried about them getting into their their corner, you know, what have you. Mm. But it was not any sort of scandal or something like that. Um, And I think what makes the the reintroduction Colorado even more like difficult to navigate politically is that it's super controversial because this is the first time that a public vote was held to decide whether or not they had a a public vote to decide whether or not the wolves should be reintroduced. So back in 2020, Proposition 114 was passed. So this was the proposition that would give um, 
the Colorado Parks and Wildlife uh, group, which is sort of, it's like the NC Wildlife Federation, the people who are in charge of all the wildlife in the state, essentially, um, would give them the power to bring wolves back. And it highlighted the plan and how that would be done and all that sort of thing. And it won and it was passed, but by a tiny margin, how tiny you might be asking, only 50.91% of people voted to bring wolves back. So whoa, okay, that is not that is not an overwhelming majority. No, it was by I mean, just a handful of votes almost. So according to the proposition, Colorado Parks and Wildlife would be tasked with reintroducing wolves using quote the best scientific data available, as well as taking scientific, economic, and social considerations into account. Um, who, if I may inter- interrupt, yeah. uh, who who was who was voting in these? Is it just the general Colorado public, or yeah, it would be like, who who had access to this vote? Yeah, it was the citizens of Colorado who. Um, okay, so just anybody who heard about it could just be like, I object or I agree. Yeah, anyone you know, in Colorado, any, as long thing. as you were a citizen of Colorado, you had the ability to to vote however you wanted on this this proposition. This, this proposition specifically designates the gray wolves, so the species that would be brought back, as non-game, which yeah. is very important. Okay, so they can't hunt them. Yeah, which yeah, essentially means people can't hunt them. Very important. We're going to circle back to that at the end of this. Um, and it also calls for regular, ter- or regular monitoring of the population, of course. Um, and, and the plan was over 200 pages in length. So this, this was not just some... Google Doc put together like two days before the vote or something like there was a lot of information in this document. And Reed DeWalt, who works for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, stated, quote, we know that wolves will do well here. We wanted to make sure this was from the get go done with the citizens of Colorado and not done to the citizens of Colorado. Mm. I think that's very important to remember as we're talking about this story. Um, done four versus done two. Exactly. Um, and I think that's probably the whole reason they held this vote, because as we will see further in this discussion, when wolves have be, been reintroduced into other places, specifically, you know, like Yellowstone and Wyoming and Montana and places like that, there has been a lot of public uproar about that. Yes. So I think that's what they were kind of trying to prevent here is like, we're going to let the people decide whether or not this should happen. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's important to point out most of the support has come from um, liberal leaning citizens and environmentalists. But a lot of the ranchers and the hunters in these communities are very much against the reintroduction of wolves, as I'm sure you can imagine. <laughs> um, so here's a yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. So so here's a quote from one of the ranchers. Quote, we've been dreading the reintroduction for quite a while. Now the reintroduction is almost here, but we don't have a choice. It's just the stress, not only for me, but for our hunting community. But, you know, this is not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. There are some ranchers that adamantly support the reintroduction and, and do believe that wolves and humans can and should coexist together. Um, but, but there are certainly a lot of concerns with this reintroduction and some that I also share. So there's concerns that Colorado might be too crowded for the wolves. And this was a claim made by a recent NPR article. We love NPR here at the Metazoa podcast. Um, They do do. wonderful research. And a lot of the information I have in here has come from that NPR article. So if you want 
like more information, go read that. Highly, highly recommend it. But less than 50 years ago, Colorado's population of humans, not of wolves, obviously, but their human population was below 2 million. Today, that number has tripled to 6 million people. That is quite the increase. That's quite the increase. That is, yeah. Um, and there's, and these are concerns that have been going on for decades, but prime wildlife habitat has been fragmented by resorts and highways and urban developments. Here's a quote from a Republican senator, Perry Will, who said, quote, I think there is going to be constant conflict with wolves in this state due to the fragmented habitat that does exist, um, which I'm not going to argue against. Colorado, there are some places where it would be hard for any sort of wildlife to, to live a, a, a good, thriving existence. Yeah. Um, and I think that can be said about most states in in the U.S., quite frankly. Um, but not everyone agrees, of course. There's opinions on both sides. Um, so a lot of biologists and environmentalists believe that wolves would be able to adapt to the human landscape. So Joanna Lambert, who I love her very much, she's great. Um, she's an environmental studies professor at the University of Colorado, and she was a key player in the formation of the ballot. So she was the one who helped with a lot of the like more scientific data and aspects of that original proposition that people voted on. Um, and she's also one of the leading experts on Yellowstone wolves. Like she's been doing research on Yellowstone's wolves for decades now. Um, but she stated, quote, wolves are superb dispersers. They're highly intelligent. They're adaptable, flexible, and if given half a chance, they do well. And so one thing that she points out in the NPR article when they interviewed her is that Research shows, despite a rise in the human population outside of Yellowstone National Park, predation rates on livestock have remained much lower than expected from the wolves. Um, that's very important to note. And she also says that it's very clear from not only her research, but just from the research on wolves in general that we do have. Um, wolves don't like us. <laughs> They, they really don't <laughs> like people at all. Um, Wolf-human interactions have remained pretty low in the United States since their reintroductions across the Rocky Mountains. Um, and, and very few of these involve any sort of like aggressive behavior. It's just like someone walking down a trail and seeing a wolf and then having a little stare down for a couple seconds and then the wolf runs off or whatever. Going their way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that this is very important to know, too, is that apex predators recognize other apex predators, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so so they, so they a wolf is not going to just needlessly go after a grizzly bear or something because, because the chances of, of the wolf getting hurt is, is very high in that scenario. So, so this is very important to remember is that wolves are not just out here attacking things. <laughs> Stealing babies. Stealing babies or, or something crazy like that. Another good point is that Colorado has a very stable source of prey for wolves. Um, the amount of elk in Colorado, Jacob, you know, I love and adore elk. Okay, but there are too many in Colorado. How many is too many? Try 300,000. 300,000. That's a lot of elk. This Colorado has more elk than any other state. Then perhaps states combined. Um, Wyoming, which is right next door, has like 117,000 elk. 
So Colorado has almost triple that. For greater comparison, Phoebe, how many do do we have? <laughs> like two hundred, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. So Colorado has has a lot of elk. Okay, and even though there are there's a lot of human development in Colorado, that that is certainly happening. There's a lot of stretches of wilderness too that people aren't really developing or going into. Um, and this is what biologists are predicting the wolves are going to stick to. They're, they're basically saying, like, look, wolves are not going to wander down your urban neighborhood and wreak havoc. They're, they're going to stay in places where there are no people because that is their nature. They don't like, yeah, they don't like us, mm-hmm. um, which is totally fair. I don't know if I like us very much either. Um, <laughs> so that, that's just some of the differing opinions that people have had on this wolf reintroduction. Now, here's where we start to get into some kind of crazy political turmoil that's going on with this. And I I really don't like, I don't think politics belong in any sort of scientific endeavor. Um, But Colorado Parks and Wildlife, since this bill has been passed, have had a very difficult time finding the wolves for the reintroduction. So... Are they hand selecting them like yes. they did the elk? Yeah, they're they're gonna. Well, they went out there and did hand select the wolves. Yeah, but when they were in the process of just trying to find wolves to hand select, they wanted to have about ten to fifteen wolves reintroduced every year for the next five years. That was kind of their goal. So what they were looking for was wolves that come from states to the border, Colorado. So you know. Idaho. To be a somewhat similar environment. Exactly. Like similar environment, similar other wildlife in the area. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. they had their eyes set on Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. Those were their top states. Um, But they did have Oregon and Washington as backup options. Um, But they didn't really want to go with Oregon and Washington because, you know, it's very different environment there, different climate, that sort of thing. Not that wolves would not be able to adapt, but that just wasn't the place that they were really wanting to get their wolves from. Right. So a Colorado Parks and Wildlife spokesperson, Travis Duncan, he said in a statement, quote, we are looking for sources of wolves that are as ecologically similar to the environment that they will find in Colorado. This includes terrain, prey availability, and similar characteristics. We would only source wolves from an area where the removal of those animals from the source population would not put that population at risk. So, Yeah, because what's the point of reintroducing the wolves one place if it ends up killing the wolves in another place? Exactly. And so it sounds to me like they were being pretty like careful about that selection process, which I really appreciate them for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same week that this reintroduction plan was finalized back in May of 2023... And this was let, let me let me just like lay this out for you. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife, when they had this plan finalized, were going to send letters to these different states, like asking, like, "Hey, here's the basic layout of our plan. Would you be interested in giving us some wolves?" You know, obviously more eloquently and with more mm-hmm. information than that, but that was just their their general layout. Before these letters even got drafted, Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon who we're not getting into politics here, but he he's not a scientist, let me tell you that, said that he refused to send wolves to Colorado before he even got a letter about it. Here was his statement on the matter. Quote, Wyoming has the scars and lessons learned from the reintroduction of wolves. 
Originally, gray wolves were to be a Yellowstone National Park population, but not to the surprise of any, wolves have been found throughout the state now. End quote. So hmm. we're already starting off bad <laughs> with <laughs> with their plan here. So he he's he's saying that um, that he doesn't think that they can control the the wolf population and that they'll just kind of run rampant. Yeah, basically. Or he's like, I I don't want another state to go through what my state has gone through. Sort of hmm. situation. We'll circle back to that. Yeah. Um, so so that's that's not a good start. Um, and so after this initial rejection, Colorado, they reached out to Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington. And I think at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials were like, this is going to be much more difficult than we thought. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just for some context, there's about 2,800 wolves that roam between the four states, which when I, when I looked up that number, that's is shockingly low to me. 2,800 wolves yeah. just that's in four states. That's that's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing. So, so here's a quote um, from actually the letters that they sent. If you are open to it, I would like to begin the discussion to determine if your state would be willing to donor, and if so, embark on the necessary process to secure the arrangement. Um, Idaho declined next. And so Idaho, uh, they cited... At least they waited to get yeah, the letter. At least they waited to get the letter. Like, they heard them out. Um, but Idaho cited political and legal issues that they've been facing over wolf management, which I tried to, like, figure out what those were, but it made no sense to me. So, you know, I, I cannot speak on how legitimate those are. But a spokesperson um, for Idaho Fishing Game wrote, quote, if we gave wolves to Colorado, it's likely that those wolves and the descendants of those wolves will end up in states that didn't ask for them. So same sentiment. Kind of very similar sentiment, but again, they waited for the letter, so that gives them some points in my book. (laughs) Um, And so Montana rejected next, and they just kept getting rejected until finally Oregon, of all states, agreed. And as we mentioned earlier, this was not the prioritized state that they wanted to get the wolves from. Oregon is very different in terms of climate, in terms of terrain. But what is um, kind of good is that the wolves in Oregon are expert elk hunters. That is their main food source. So it's not like they're going to have to adapt to a whole new food source or anything like that. Um, So Colorado Parks and Wildlife was like, well, maybe they'll still be a pretty good fit for us. So they finally arranged to get some wolves from Oregon and they had to wait for a federal permit uh, to be passed. And this was passed on December 8th of 2023, just a couple weeks ago. And immediately Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials traveled to Oregon to find their wolves. Like, <laughs> like day of, they were on planes going yeah. up there. So they monitored some wild wolves for a couple days, just trying to make, sh- you know, like choose healthy individuals who would be able to survive moving. Because you have to imagine, you know, this is going to be a huge change for these animals. This is going to be stressful for them. And there, there's no way any reintroduction is going to have some stress on the animals. That's just in the nature of the reintroduction, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want wolves that are old or, you know, not going to be able to adapt very well to a t- totally new environment. So the first batch of wolves was five. So they um, collared them. 
they measured them, they, they numbered them, and they tested them for different diseases to make sure that they were as healthy as they could be. They got some volunteer pilots to fly them back to Colorado, and they were transported to Grand County, Colorado, which is about 60 miles from any other state border. That might sound like a lot, but for wolves, that is like one day's worth of travel, um, which is kind of interesting to me. I do think that that's very interesting that it is so close. And I'm pretty sure that that's on the Idaho border. Um, It is kind of interesting that they chose a spot that close to Idaho, given Idaho's response. Um, But (laughs) kind of a slap in the face, (laughs) a little bit, Um, which is kind of funny, but like also not really because Idaho lets you hunt wolves. So if a wolf were to cross into Idaho, the protections they have in Colorado doesn't mean anything anymore. But, you know, maybe there just wasn't any other place. That's what I'm hoping is like this was the best place that they could find. So December 18th arrives and they release the wolves into Colorado. And then on the 20th, just a couple of days later, they get an additional five wolves from the same place or in Oregon. Um, And these wolves were released in both Grand and Summit counties. Um, Summit County, I believe, is just right on the border of of Grand County, Colorado. So the first reintroduction, the one on the 18th, was highly attended and advertised. Um, The governor of, of Colorado, Jared Polis, he was there in attendance. And the second reintroduction, the one on the 20th, was much more secluded. They didn't give out exact locations for safety reasons, which, of course, makes Mm -hmm. sense. And the first one, they didn't give out exact locations either. Even though it was highly attended, it was just like a select couple of people. Um, But the second one was much more quiet. So in total, there are now six females. All of these are yearlings and four males, which is two adults and two yearlings out in Colorado which some people might hear that they're yearlings and say, well, that seems weird to introduce like baby wolves into Colorado. But the, these yearlings are like 70 pounds. Okay. They're, they're fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can promise you that like they're, they're able to stand on their own. Right. Um, and the females, I believe most of them came from the same pack. So they all kind of know each other. I think the males, there's some that were kind of loners, um, which is not like uncommon for male wolves to wander and try to establish territories. But that is in total, there are now 10 wolves in Colorado. And we we, we awesome. are just waiting to see what happens with that. <laughs> what happens? Um, because even though they're a non-game species and they do have these protections, right? Um, there is a little bit of wiggle room for ranchers and, and people who own livestock where if the if a wolf is, you know, killing their goats or their cattle or, or whatever, um, I don't know if there's like a certain limit or, or what, but you can report that into Colorado Parks and Wildlife and get permission to, to shoot and, and kill that wolf. Um, so I, I don't know how that's going to work out. <laughs> um I wish that they had some more protections because it doesn't sound like they have a whole lot right now, but we're, we're just going to cross our fingers with this one. And I think if, if there's one thing that this whole Colorado reintroduction has highlighted, it's that wolves in the United States have had a tough time, a really like tough yes, history yeah. in the United States 
so I, I think it's going to be very important to go into the history of wolves in the United States. Um, but I, I know that this conversation, it's very important to me. Um, and I think that we're both very passionate about talking about this sort of thing with conservation, right? Um, so what we're going to do, just to make it easier for our lovely, wonderful listeners out there, um, because this this could be kind of long um, and we're already sitting at like 50 minutes right now, is we're just going to make a little part one and part two, just split this up into two different parts. That'll also help us keep it a little bit more organized as well. So um, we're going to be uploading them at the same time, but... We'll be doing part two where we talk about the history of wolves in the United States. Um, so thank everyone for listening. We appreciate you and we love you. Um, we hope you enjoyed. We hope you enjoyed and we hope you're going to enjoy part two. But if you want to support us, please follow us on all the social medias at the Metazoa podcast. We appreciate it very, very much. And we're, we're really trying to engage with our audience as much as we can. Um, especially on Instagram, um, but we are also on Twitter mm-hmm. and TikTok. And if you have any feedback, oh, yes. please, please let us know. Please. Let us know. Tell us your your least favorite part, your favorite part, what what you what you liked, what you didn't like. We want to hear it we all. We want to hear it all because we want this to be the best that it can possibly be. And to do that, we need the the feedback from y'all. Um, so thank you once again for listening to the Metazoa podcast, and we will see you here for part two. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.